You're listening to Theology Untucked with Tim and Caleb. Our aim, as always, is to help the people of God understand, love, and enjoy the Word of God. For more information, visit us at theologyuntucked.com. Welcome to another episode of Theology Untucked with Tim and Caleb. Tonight's episode is titled, Literary Genres of Scripture, The Law. And now, here are your hosts and theologians, Legis, Tim and Caleb. What's up, Tim? Ah, not too much. I'm having a pretty good week, a little bit busy. Uh, but that's okay. We just started back seminary again for another semester of, uh, actually the last semester, at least for our, uh, for our classes. So that's exciting. Uh, we'll never have another start of, uh, classes again. And so everything from here on out feels like it's more, um, downhill, even though I know most of it's uphill, but it kind of just has this feeling of completion of a thing. I don't know. Seven years in seminary will do that to you, I guess. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I feel good. I, I mean, I, I really like both of these classes that we're in. Yeah, so we're starting biblical archaeology. Um, so just now getting into those texts. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm really learning a lot because it really is kind of a, it's a new thing to me. I've, I've never had any experience other than just something, you know, that, that we've had since been in, being in seminary. But I mean, it's getting in good detail um right yeah so i'm i'm really excited about that other classes uh got a great discussion groups that we're in um interesting book that we're reading yeah interesting would be one word for it um (laughs) i wrote a pretty scathing review in our uh discussion boards um it was Oh, goodness gracious. Uh, maybe we'll hold an episode at some point uh, on reviewing books like this, ones that uh, ought to be avoided. Um, and this this particular book is just kind of focused on um, quote-unquote reframe, ref, was it reforming uh, Reforming theological anthropology. anthropology. Uh, right, and then we find out he's an atheist. Um, well, he became an atheist later. Funny story right. about this. So I didn't read his backstory. I usually, when I pick up a book, mm-hmm. I go and search out the author, see who they are, what they're coming from. Um, this guy, I mean, I I was reading uh, reading about halfway through the book, and I just it just dawns on me. I'm sitting here writing my notes out, and I said, you know, the, the outcome of this is just theological ruin. I was like, I don't even see how that's avoidable. And that's when I went to go look him up. And I was like, oh, <laughs> well, yeah, that's not a surprise. Uh, like seven, eight years after he wrote that book, he kind of came out as atheist against the concept of a god at all. Um, yeah, it, it's it, very interesting uh, concept that this Christian atheist type thing that's good because he's still writing. Of course books and they they really kind of sound along the same vein of when he was and and so it's interesting because when you brought that up nobody in in our discussion group knew it of course i popped everybody's bubble with that but you know everybody i was late to the discussion but everybody's kind of got this you know little bit of just kind of he's confusing and philosophers and um, yeah, and, and that's that was the same feel that well, I had. If you don't had. have a background of philosophy, you just kind of glaze over when he's whenever he's just sitting here talking about you know oh this and and the body soul you know unity and then the uh, you know going through the history uh, all the way through Kant and Hegel and all these things. It's like, but if you have a background in philosophy and I'd hope in theology, you'd be familiar with these discussions. I mean, Hegelian. Uh, thought is so influential in especially in the more liberal uh, theologies and the progressive theologies of the 19th century and you know he's coming right out of this and then just coming to the logical extents of that which is postmodern theology the idea of um and and he would argue against this he's well i'm not just deconstructing these things which is like the first stop of postmodernity. he says "I'm, i'm reconstructing them and I was like, well, yeah, not before you destroy them and then build them back however you want. 
Um, well, one of my comments, and, it, and it's common, it, it had this Gnostic smell to it. And, of course, that was, that was a comment that I'd made. And then, of course, then, you know, then you, you get to looking in the backstory. And it, so it just, I, I wasn't that that far off. Um, yeah. That just the language that he used. And, and, and also what, you know, what's really good about, you don't have to necessarily be, a philosopher the problem is when you allow your philosophy to to try and and, and project that onto christianity but Correct. christian theologians it it should speak to our philosophy and jesus was the greatest philosopher in the world and so and and you can we can all of us can slip into this error um and so you can kind of see that slide of how he would have went just like say um I, I i do think the guy's heart is in the right place but his theology from the get-goes was was really bad because he's talking about this idea of, of relationality and basically about how our how our we need to have spiritual terms to define our relationality like no uh we need Jesus. <laughs> we need Jesus, um, and and I, that I should that, speak that... to our relationality. Uh, it's called discipleship. Um, we don't have to make yeah. up new words. Um, well, everyone has to make up new words. That was a thing in the early two thousands, especially in theology. Everything from relationality to missional churching, or uh, all this kind of stuff. Just every buzzword that there is in theology, kind of they all kind of tumble around in a. In, in a bit of a uh, a bit of a thing for a while until it kind of comes out looking like everything else. But um, I think it was one of the more frustrating parts of reading it was, you know, I, I don't think his heart was in the right place. I think he had good intentions. No, well, I guess but, that's what I mean. His heart wasn't right. He had good it, intentions. Yeah. Yeah. But, his his heart is dark. There's just nothing there. There's no depth to the gospel. There's no. I mean, there's there's aspects here and then aspects here, but it, it sounded like somebody who was at one point intellectually convinced of the truth of Christianity and then slowly intellectually moved away from it. And that is that is the bondage that philosophy can work on somebody who is not a Christian at the beginning. And and this is one of the things that even Paul warns about in Colossians too, that don't 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 get brought in and put under subjection. Look, there's nothing wrong with studying philosophy. I personally love it. I find it I fascinating. But a <laughs> big but on this is there's limits. Yeah. There's big limits and and you know, just because something sounds great or you know is in, internally consistent does not mean that it is correct. Um, and there's a lot of difficulties that come in with philosophy and, you know, I'm not, I'm certainly not in the camp with Tertullian saying, you know, what is Athens to do with Jerusalem? You know, as if philosophy yeah. and theology should never touch. And I'm definitely not Justin Martyr who goes, you know, um, you know, Jesus and, and the God of Israel, the God of the philosophers. I'm not into that side either. I, I, I would find myself happily in the middle, maybe a little bit more Tertullian, um, but you know, after Augustine and things like this in history, philosophy and theology kind of just move side by side. And it's why we see theology like this author's theology, um, fall into the exact same traps that our current culture is spiraling down into. Yeah. And um, Paul's, and Paul's consistently writing and dealing with this thing in his epistles right. all the time. Even, even though, you know, scholars are going to say full blown Gnosticism had, didn't come into effect till second century. You see the early stages of it, and of course, it, it makes sense that Paul would recognize this because it happens in Hellenized Judaism first. Um, mm -hmm. These these types mm -hmm. of strains and movements, um, and so this kind of somewhat rolls us into our discussion today, the literary genre series that we're starting, and mm -hmm. uh, we did wisdom literature on the last one, and so now we're talking about the law. So what's the law. the law? Do you follow the law, Tim, or is the law abolished? <laughs> I love that dichotomy. <laughs> Neither would be my answer. Here's my copy. I love my Tanakh here. So I get my uh, um, 
I, my Torah right here, so I can pull out my my law right here. Uh, the answer to your question is um, I I don't want to answer that question because that's not a way to phrase it. Um, that's, I, it's not. I, it's things, a trick. Yeah, I know. And so so when you say law, I mean it comes with such a huge amount of baggage. That's um, right. You know, I mean, so strictly speaking, we're talking about the literary genre tonight. So historically speaking we are speaking only of the first five books uh of the uh, of the hebrew scriptures it's genesis exodus leviticus i'll switch it around deuteronomy and numbers right it's it's these first five that are a culturally establishing civil and ceremonial code with a moral law that stands behind every commandment coming from the one god of the universe to make one culture that is the people of Israel, the nation of Israel. And that law was particularly given uh, by covenant through Moses to the people of Israel as God delivered them out of Egypt. That's when Genesis and Exodus were written, Leviticus along the way, Numbers as well, and Deuteronomy towards the very end. Um, these were all written during the wanderings of the people of Israel in the desert. And so that, that becomes... It becomes an establishing text. And so I, I'd say that would be my first point about it, um, is that law, even the narratives of Genesis, the narratives of Exodus, and the narratives in Deuteronomy and in Numbers, and all the commandments, and all the rules, and statutes, and all of these things, that all makes up the, the Hebrew word Torah, which is law. And so it is an establishing text for a culture. So, and, that, and that's why it's important to even realize when Genesis is written, a lot of people, when they get into discussions about Genesis, they kind of throw out who it was written for and, you know, like the basic contextual uh, interpretations, who it was written for, when it was written, what situation it was written, and what kind of is its argument. It's an establishing text. Who just took us out of Egypt? Who Try. is this God that 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 is in this fire tornado, and we can cross the Red Sea? It's like, well, he was the one that brought the land up from the sea, right? And so it, they're they're learning about this God as they go along the way. Obviously, they had it wrong when they first started because a whole bunch of them, including Aaron, were worshiping a golden calf at the foot of Mount Sinai. And and these are the gods that took you up out of Egypt. And Moses comes back down and says, no, they're not. Here is the one who took you up out of Egypt, and they spend 40 years in the wilderness um, learning that in a pretty harsh way. And so that's my first point about it, is law is an establishing text for a, a particular people. Yeah, so that, that was one of the, I guess, one of the biggest things early on in, in seminary it, that, that I learned. It learned how to do... I'm not going to say well, but better, and I'm continuing to get better, but bringing in content. And, and these are things really that you learn in eighth grade English class with literature, like bringing in context, you know, who, you know, who's the, who's the author, who's the audience. And, and for some reason, sometimes it's almost like the, the church has either been taught, I, I, I would, I would say not not purpose there's nothing nefarious in there but it's like we throw all of these basic literary ideas that we learned in school out the window when we're reading the bible and, and, we, and right. we shouldn't do that and of course so, so when you when you bring it into context just say with like genesis and there's these days of creation and and then he brought up like worshiping the cat well i mean it make it makes sense that that they're doing these types of things in, in the sense of they're going back to their default posture. This, this is right. how, this is this is where they've been for 400 years. This is what they've seen people doing. That, you know, that they're, they're in this foreign culture with pagan gods where the Pharaoh um, is a god. And, and you see what Moses is doing is he's putting the kibosh on all these gods. Um, and he's not doing that explicitly saying, this is, this is what I'm doing, knocking all these gods out, but they would have known exactly what he was saying, um, right. because and we're far removed from it. We, we, we can miss it. 
Well, I think from our cultural perspective, we have an even a, a, a larger distance to travel as well, and that is a distance of experience. I mean, they lived in a culture that not only worshipped these deities, but had spiritual powers floating all around in it. That's right. I mean, look at the things that, that the diviners and the magicians in Egypt were able to do in mimicking Moses's plagues on Egypt. And, you know, we, we look at it with such modern eyes that when we come to the description of the golden calf, for instance, because this is an establishing text, very important, right? Aaron makes a claim. We melted all the gold. And what happened? This calf came out of it. Yeah. Now, I think in our modern way of looking at that, we just go like, well, he's just, what an idiot, you know, as, you know, who would believe that? And it's like, um, everybody. Yeah. Because that probably did happen. Yeah. And, it, and the reality is it, it, he's probably telling the truth that when they brought all of this together, that literally came out of it. Now we look at that and we just go like, wow, what a, what a stupid excuse. Who would ever try to, I mean, Aaron is not a stupid person at this point. He's almost 90 years old. Okay. I mean, this is the, the future high priest. You think he's of, not shucking some responsibility? Cause I, I, I do see what you're I, saying I, on that. He you think is. he's almost kind of like, like the way it's like, yeah, we go golden. Books and out came this calf, almost like it wasn't my fault. It's the people. It's the of gold. course he's using it as an excuse. Right. But we pass over it so much and say the supernatural, the supernatural. I think part he truly of it. is talking about there was a supernatural thing going on here. What do you want from me, Moses? <laughs> you know, and Moses is like, we're in a war. <laughs> there, yes, there's spiritual forces on the other side, but we're with the God who created all things, and I, I that really is what law is meant to do is to establish them as who god is and that is the primary uh focus of the first five books is who is the god that took you up out of egypt it's the exact same thing that moses asked him if 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 they're gonna you know you're gonna send me to the people they're gonna ask me who you are and what's your name and he just goes i am tell them i am and sent you and and they would it's, have known exactly what is God what like. What is God like? What is God like? What is God like? And every time we come to another commandment, we see how holy God is by contrast to us. You know, and and that and that that it's like this whole swirl of of God using narrative, God using story, God using commandments, God using the designs of the tabernacle, the separation of the skins, the the style of sacrifice, everything. To just show them who he is, and by contrast, who they are. And what their proper response is to be. Exactly. exactly. So the law was meant, just like laws today, it, it, it's meant to protect um, mm -hmm. a vulnerable people that's coming out of a culture that's totally foreign, and so they're, they're vulnerable. Um, it shows a loving God. It shows the consistency of a, of a loving God. And that's uh, what, when people when people go to the law and say, you know, I you know I'm I'm reading through. You know, here we are, right? Or at the beginning of another year, you know, oh, I'm going to read through the Bible, and Genesis, and then Exodus, and then right as you get about the second half of Exodus and start Leviticus in February, you're just kind of going, all right, forget my New Year's resolution to read through the Bible. This is really drudgery and stuff, and God just really mean and things. I see completely different eyes yeah. with this. All I see is God's grace all over these texts. That's right. Everywhere, everywhere. And and I I remember looking at it and seeing, oh my gosh, this is boring. There's so much, there's so much of this and that and rules and law, you know, what's the point? And it's just ceremonial stuff and man, I'm so glad to be a Christian and not a Jew. You know, and and having that perspective on it and yet the because its main purpose is to show this nation who their God is, one of the main things that's going to come out of that is the grace of God. Mm -hmm. And it comes out all over the place once you start looking. Yeah. So it's not just a set of rules. By the time the second temple period, so when we talk about the second temple period, and we're talking about the fifth century. Yeah. Right. So, you know, they're, um, Second temple's been built. Um, it's it's obviously it's it's destroyed later in seventy A.D. Um, but this is this interim period to when Jesus is about to come on the scene. Mm -hmm. um, 
and the theology of what would be during that time, Judaism changes. And and in some ways you can kind of make sense of how this would happen. You have the law and it's kind of like they they're putting borders around the wall. Um, yeah. Maybe maybe go, erring yeah. to the side of caution, you know, um, but but also you see kind of what's happened is the the law in itself when they're dealing with Jesus has has become an idol, um, yeah, uh, and 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 so I I, th- I very much think that this is a a human character flaw that God well knows that e- even though we not might not be bowing down to a golden calf. We're, we're prone to idolatry. Um, but what is it about the church today? So let's talk about the church today. Is that there is this misconception of the law has been abolished under the new covenant, that the law is abolished. Right, right, how right. is it that they're, how is it that we're missing the mark and, and how is it that people are misunderstanding and misteaching that because in many ways this is explicitly explicitly been taught what is it they're saying what is it that they're not saying and how do we need to think rightly about the law today i mean that's that's a lot of questions i know Uh, that's a lot so that's um so let let me start with the big one which is you know the stuff you'll hear all the time which is you know we're not under the law we're under grace type stuff you know so therefore (laughs) I can take advantage of God's grace, tempt him, and do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want, with no regard to his opinion on the matter. Um, yeah, that's not what we're under grace means. That's Being right. under grace is a higher standard, even than the law, with regards to what is required of righteousness. And what is required of righteousness is Christ's righteousness, not our own and so there, there is a massive categorical misunderstanding when people say something like the law is gone or the law is abolished. Christ explicitly, I wrote a paper on this last semester, huge paper on just this statement of Christ, where he says, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. Uh, I came to bring it to its fulfillment, to its completion, um, not to like close the book on it but to bring it to, like, in its full realization, in the very life and person of Christ. Everything in law, in Torah genre, looks forward to Christ, right? How are we, you know, we look at, we look at law. What is it the first thing to do? It's to show us who our God is. It points us to Christ. That's right. Right? It's to establish a people. What is it Christ does? It's what he comes to do. He, you know... And, and so this, this whole idea that, that Jesus just did away with all the rules and now we can just do whatever because he forgives us, um, that, that is actually described in Jude as the very thing that false teachers teach, which is they turn the grace of God into lewdness, uh, a license to do whatever we want. And that is simply not the attitude of a Christian, nor is that the attitude of the Christian's savior. And so this idea that it's abolished is, first of all, completely and thoroughly refuted by Christ himself in the Sermon on the Mount. He sits down and explains there is nothing about the law that is going to pass away until all of it is accomplished, till it's all come to fruition. It's not just that he fulfilled everything by doing all the things right. He fulfilled the entire purpose that the law was sent in the first place. And here's what he says in Matthew. And maybe this is specifically the text you were, you were talking about. Because I remember we were discussing if this if before. If it's Matthew 5, 17 through 20 is the one I wrote the paper on. Five, yeah. And 5, 5, 18. For truly I yep. say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Yep. All means all. Well. Now, <laughs> is, it all, is it all accomplished? Is it all accomplished? The purpose of the law? No. Right. He's still accomplishing it. He's still accomplishing it. But yet, he has accomplished what he came came here to do. He's fulfilled the law. 
but whole big old pile it, bunch of it, but he's not done. <laughs> because they're still evil. We're still here. Yep. It still remains. The gospel's still moving moving forward in in the world. Yeah. And and that's that's really kind of goes to you know, a lot of people look at the law, look at the first five books and go, you know, I as Christian, what what does this have anything to do with my life? And and a lot of people how many how many times do people even hear sermons out of the book of Leviticus or Numbers for crying out loud? Or Deuteronomy. I mean Deuteronomy, what a fantastic book. Uh, and to just overlook it, my goodness, I've I've written multiple papers out of that book. It's incredible. Um, and maybe we'll get Genesis, you know, because it's good narrative or something like that. And maybe the first parts of Exodus. But how many of us actually sit down in the law code and adore our God? Hmm. You know, I mean, there the things in the holiness code that just show us, once we know what we know about the ancient Near East who our God is by comparison to the gods that man makes up. It's just, it's just, it's unimaginably amazing. Yeah. And, and that most of us miss that because we just want to not have to deal with knowing it, which is really what the issue is. It's not because we actually think the law is abolished. It's because we're too damn lazy to learn about it. Um, we miss, we miss it and we miss so much that's in it. And what Jesus is saying here is do not fall into this trap of thinking that I'm abolishing the law. And and there he's actually referring to the whole corpus of scripture. I was just about to bring that because because there's other times where they're speaking about the law and it's not specifically these first five books. Because Correct. they'll be quoting, say, from Psalms. Some right. wisdom and literature so, and they'll be calling it the law. And so this, this actually goes right into my dissertation topic because the way that Jesus refers to the scriptures is in multiple different ways. Sometimes it's law and it's a compendium of everything in the Hebrew scriptures. Sometimes he refers to it as the law and the prophets. In fact, you'll see that in uh, Matthew five seventeen, mm-hmm. the verse previous. He'll call it the law and the prophets. Elsewise, he'll call it uh, in the Psalms, the law and the prophets or, or in, you know, and... It, it's it's in all of these places he's referring to the whole of scripture, the whole of what God says, everything that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Um, the very thing he said to Satan in the temptation, man doesn't live by bread alone. Hey, he's quoting from Deuteronomy. He lives by everything that proceeds from the mouth of God. And, and all of these things have, therefore we live on them. They establish us, they make us, they show us who our God is. And then they go with us along the way. And that and that really speaks to the whole purpose of why law genre exists in the first place, which is not only to show us who we are by contrast, like a mirror. We look, you know, James talks about that. We go, we look at the the law, and we see exactly what type of person we are, just like a mirror. And then we walk away. You know, do you forget what you look like, or do you remember? You know, that's James too. He talks all about that. Um, that's the first pers- purpose of the law. It's this, it's this kind of mirror thing. See who you are by contrast to God. Um, and then there was also, as we discussed, an establishing purpose for it. it we call it the second use of the law, which is this uh, civil purpose for the nation of Israel. Uh, and it should sit behind, at least the moral concepts of it should sit behind our civil codes as well. Because this world is God's world. It doesn't actually belong to humans. Um, And so when he gives, for instance, a way for the civil law code of the nation of Israel to work, that doesn't mean we just take that law and drop it in the 21st century. Most of them don't even translate like that. It means the moral principles that sit behind that, which is why we go to the Ten Commandments so often, because almost all of those are moral principle statements. Absolutely. But there's plenty more. Um, that these moral principles that sit behind these laws, those should inform all of us. You know, God holds Edom uh, responsible for not upholding his law, for instance. Uh, Edom is not the chosen people of Israel. It's that they're breaking his moral code, that not only is he written in their hearts, but he is expressed through the nation of Israel. And they were supposed to be coming to Jerusalem and worshiping the God of Israel there in Jerusalem. And they're failing to do that is not an excuse for them uh, to just go and because we all agree that something's legal. I think of, for instance, the issue of abortion in our country. Just because we agree that it's legal, that doesn't make it okay with God. Yeah. So, and I speak about this a lot. That the 
when you when you go through these laws, there, there are there's there's different laws that obviously you know that's an error I believe that that mostly in your fundamentalist strains are going to take laws that are that are not culturally relevant. They weren't meant to be transposed onto a modern people. But but when you go through these law codes, like for example, in, in Exodus, don't bull a baby goat in its mother's milk. Mm-hmm. Now, I've, I've got, <laughs> got some ideas. Yeah, <laughs> I, I've got that one covered. Now, so what's interesting is is today um, that the Jewish people do not eat meat of any kind, not just goats, and milk together. So just kind of like that one, that one together, it just shows you a picture of how they kind of even added to and kind of put some little borders or erring to the side of caution. Well, can eat goat and well, let's go ahead. But we still also, because we're so far removed from it, don't exactly. There's a lot of debate on on what it means. Um, right. But it, it, it's kind of just one example. But but the so point what is, is that, with that, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, I think I think that all of it's relevant but there and again we we've got to really do some digging and do some work to try to understand what some of these texts are when when you read that in context you can get a little bit of a feel um Mm -hmm. i believe of what's being communicated but the idea being just like religious activity that he's given the people of israel and the ancient near eastern culture the law it's not totally foreign to the ancient Near Eastern world, but there's also a little bit a difference. And so it's not only speaking to just the people of Israel, it's speaking to the surrounding nations that are around them and watching them. This is how you are supposed to operate. Um, and, And we see several stories in the Old Testament of people that are of the nations coming in to faith of Israel. And so that this kind of gets back into our discussion of what faith means. It wasn't mm-hmm. it wasn't the law that made them made the nations, made the Gentiles want want to worship their God. It was it was the personal relationship God and what he's did and his power and mm-hmm. they responded in faith to it. Um mm-hmm. So th- therein lies, you know, how, how we think about the law, how we think about how we think about faith, that it, it was never meant to be a protectionist thing, a, a racial superiority type thing. It it was it was for all of humanity. Right. And it kind of makes sense from from the plan. You know, we've got hindsight, we're able to look back. It it makes sense. If God has a plan. It, it makes sense that he's going to get Abraham and have Jake, Jake, Jacob shall be my allotted portion. He basically divorces the nations at battle, and it says, but Jacob shall be my allotted portion. And you have a people and a culture, and they are given a law, and they're protected. And guess what? That you didn't get an automatic in for being a, a, an Israelite. You, nope. you had to be loyal to God because what happens when you worshiped idols? Eventually, God destroyed them. Yep, that's not different and, today. He's not going to share allegiance. And um, the same thing he would say to them with regards to circumcision. You know, and he would call physically circumcised Israelites uncircumcised in heart and mind. Mm-hmm. And yeah, circumcision never us, saved. It never right. saved. It's kind of like baptism, actually. Yeah. Um, you know, the, it was the whole point was was not a a thing that does this um, or or something to place your faith in. There is one who is worthy of your faith, one object of our faith, and that is Christ. And and so this this whole focus of law, especially as a genre, um, yes, it does show us. God's opinion on matters. Yes, it does show us the moral law code. Yes, it does 
um, you know, the first function, it shows us who we are in contrast to God, you know, and, and its second function, it's, it's, it's meant to make a people uh, a civil law code. Uh, it's, it's meant to there to uphold righteousness in the civil order, especially in Israel and the moral principles of it in every culture, they're obligated to, to follow even that. Um, you know, and in the third function of the law, it was um, for those who truly follow the Lord to show them the attitude of their heart, to show them the, those things that God is actually doing in them um, with regards to things. You know, we, we always think of the law code, at least before we sit and study it, that it's just this law of do this and don't do this and sacrifice this and that. We forget what's the greatest commandment. Mm. Love the Lord your God with, with all your heart, heart soul, mind. mind, and strength, right? And what's the second? Love your neighbor, neighbor yourself. as yourself, right? And and those things are, are, are not pulled out at random. They are at the headstone of the re-expression of the law in the book of Deuteronomy. Mm-hmm. They, they started off, listen, the Lord your God is one Lord. You shall love him with all your heart. So, I mean, and, and it just goes through this and lays it all down. Why is this law so important? So that you will constantly be reminded of the one God. And that for those of you who truly rely on him for salvation and are fiducially bound to him, not just in the civil Israel relationship, but truly in heart and soul, This will make you love the Lord your God more. Mm-hmm. This will show you what love is. This will show you who your God is. And it will awaken in you something that David writes about all the time. I love the law of the Lord. It's perfect. It's it perfect. delights the mind. It you know, and it just he just keeps overflowing with these references to these things. And I I'm saddened when I hear Christians say the exact opposite. It's so boring. Hmm. it's not interesting and yes do we have something that outshines it at least in our perspective with the Absolutely. new testament and the gospels jesus yes and i'm not the saying man that fulfilled to the, it. right i'm not saying we return to the shadow of the thing that was before but jesus himself explicitly says these things are not passing away right it's still scripture it's mm-hmm. still there to show us now that Christ has come, we see the fullest expression. Yeah, he doesn't say unhitch. He doesn't say unhitch the Old Testament. Um, No. No, in fact, he says, go to the Old Testament and look at this. They all spoke about me. And and then uh, I I think the biggest, the biggest, I guess, confusion is people misunderstand and and confuse Paul because they blame Paul a lot. Right. What is it Paul's saying and not saying? Because Paul actually does not say this. Um, he, he, he's actually explicitly not saying that. He, he speaks about it a good bit. But he, and even, even Peter says something about people miscon, you know, misunderstand Paul. Um, right. why, why, do you think, why do you think that that's so common with Paul being accused with this kind of abolishment of the of the law idea. I I think a lot of it comes from um, well, honestly, it's one of the oldest heresies in the church, mm-hmm. right? Uh, Marcionism, um, and and mm-hmm. this idea, and Marcion built his concept of the canon of the New Testament. Basically, it was all of Paul's writings, and then Luke's writings because he traveled with Paul. An edited and version of Luke. <laughs> <laughs> An edited version, yes. And then nothing else from the New Testament and nothing from the Old. Yeah, he threw out the Gospels. He hated James, which there's there's a lot of people who didn't like James. Uh, yeah, and he yeah. just threw out all the Old Testament. So, I mean, I don't think there was a church father that didn't write a book called Against Marcion for this exact reason. We, we do not get rid of the Old Testament. If you take that out, we have nothing. We have no foundation. We have no purpose for a savior. We have no establishment, no prophecy, no. And it's not just that because it's all about Christ. It's because this is what came from the mouth of the Lord. And we are to live on that, you know. And if it came from the mouth of the Lord, then no one has a right to unhitch it or toss it aside. That's not how these things work. 
Um, but so why is it people think Paul talks about this way? It's because Paul is emphasizing the gospel is better in light of the yeah. law. And so every time he talks about it, he talks about the gospel in far more glowing terms and the law in almost detrimental terms. Right. And not because the law is bad. And he says this explicitly in mm -hmm. Romans 7. It is not because the law is bad or that the law has failed. It is me that's bad. It is me that has failed. I agree that the law is good. The law is perfect. The law is great. Nothing wrong in it at all. It's me. It's sin dwelling in my members. I, I didn't even know what coveting was until the law came in and says, do not covet. And then I was and like, then you find yourself that coveting. sounds great. That <laughs> sounds wonderful. How how wonderful. Because he, he finds in his flesh that you, he's pulled to these things. And it's the ideas. It's like, why would we go why would we, why would, and why would you, why would you go back to that? Why would you want to go back to that? Right. Um, I, I, and yeah, I, anyway, it, it's on, an, on another topic. So I, and I guess I just see so many things that make me giggle in the Bible, not in a <laughs> comedic, funny way, but these discussions that Jesus has with the, with the, with the Pharisees and the set that all the Jewish authorities, where they're always trying to catch him in this thing, can, where they're you know breaking the law, or his disciples are breaking the law. Um, and sometimes he does it explicitly in front of them. And he, yeah, he did, like you can tell he's doing it on purpose. Like they're he's like, oh, out. watching the withered man, see if I'm going to do good on the Sabbath. Sounds great. Which of you can argue doing good on the Sabbath is bad? <laughs> it's just like, oh man! <laughs> just it's like every interaction that they have with him, and and, and yeah. it's just, it, it's just, it's funny to me. Yeah, Not, it is. I, 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 I just the the brilliance of what Jesus responds with, uh, the purpose and intent, because he did. Every everything, everything he said, every action, you you see that there's, of course, you know he is God, um, right? But but that we helps. as, but yeah, <laughs> it helps. But but we also we we have the Holy Spirit of Christ. He's given us His authority, and it, it just made me think more about my vocation, my work, my relationships with people, of being intentional. With, right. with words, with actions, um, to open my spiritual eyes, to discern what what's what's going on. Um, and then also there's the times where Jesus says nothing. He's getting away from crowds and people. and He's giving them parables so that they don't understand. He's, yeah. Um, so it, it's just... And 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 his, and his idea and concept of the law, and then you, they're baffled that it's like that. This is a, a Nazarene. This is a, a a commoner. And then of course, then you see when the disciples in the church age after Acts two, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. You see the same thing. They're saying the same thing. These mm -hmm. fishermen that 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 know Scripture so well right. they know the law so well um we should never take the idea of unhitching it is there things that are tough to understand yes um but, but that's that's the really the fun part when you come to these areas like what are they talking about here what you know what how am i supposed to think about this that's the for me the beautiful part of the bible that that's fun is is digging in and Especially in the Old Testament, you know, what is it that this means? But we we should still continue to read it and study it, even even Leviticus. Man, Leviticus has got oh, the, just the idea of sacred space um, hmm. and how important that is, and then and then about how we're sacred space now. Um, it, that is, we can't that understand is our New Testament. We we just it it opens up. It does. The New because Testament. If if you're looking if you're looking at um, the New Testament, and you come to Acts chapter two, and all of a sudden, um, the people of God have become the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
And if you have no background into what the temple was, into what their I mean, identity, their everything. You know, there was there was there was three temples that God designed specifically um, after the Garden of Eden, which I believe itself was a temple. But we'll leave that off for now. No, um, yeah, it definitely was. So after after the flood, there's there's three temples specifically that God designed, and two temples that mankind designed. Um, there's the tabernacle, a skin covered. Uh, reminder of the Garden of Eden. Mm-hmm. That, that basically is it's all, all about I Eden. can say. It, right. Yeah. It's all it's all about this, right? And then you get the two temples that mankind made, which is stone, cedars, beautiful, covered in gold, the best that we can do, all that kind of stuff. And then the second temple that God designed. A baby born in a manger in mm. Bethlehem. A skin covered mm temple that brings us back to eden in in reminder of what we lost our first parents now we have here our second adam that it's it's this this these connections through all of this which if we've left off the old testament we get none of these connections uh, of this this baby that grows up and 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 can speak of the revelation of god as a 12 year old in the temple of God, that one that mankind built, Herod's temple there, and and not only impress the elders, but then grow up. This inside him is the holy of holies, mm. the real one, the place where God and man meet. Here he is, the God Man, a temple. What is he talking about? Knock down this temple in three days, I'll build it back again. He's not talking about the one with stones. He's talking about his body, and then we come to what you're referring to in Acts. And we say, now, what has the third temple that God has designed? What is it? It's the it's church. all of us. Skin-covered us. places where heaven meets earth. That wanders. It, that's imperfect. That That is now the same as the other two. Mobile. Mm. It goes out into all the world. And, and, and these themes, these perspectives, these aspects of how God has designed his temple to go exactly where he designs it to go whether it's the tabernacle whether it's jesus of nazareth going to samaria going to uh you know run into the syrophoenician woman or staying in jerusalem or going to nazareth the sea of galilee the wilderness whatever the same goes for now we come to the church and without without the foundation of torah of of the genre of law literature we don't get this connection no we don't we just wonder and we sit around because we sit all the time in the new testament and we go you know we got the body of christ is the church i don't really understand that yeah it's like there's <laughs> there's so much to that there's so much to it and the idea of the idea of the garden um and mountain so so guard the the, the the Eden concept is is spoken about as a garden. It's also spoken about as a mountaintop, where all the rivers ran out of. Right. That's right. Um, and and look, this is not this isn't foreign. This is common in the ancient Near East. Mm-hmm. Um, it if you look at Egypt, and if you look at Mesopotamia, and they built ziggurats and pyramids, it in it's places not where like there weren't mountains and places where they weren't mountains. They made it own. wasn't because the Egyptians liked or were part of the Illuminati. It just kind of makes sense. You go up to the high place to meet God, where God interacts with humankind. And so there's something that's ingrained in all of humanity to know, first of all, that there's something off in this world and this mm-hmm. desire that's in us to meet and be with our Creator. And that's that's what we have in Genesis with the story in the garden and it starts in Eden and it ends in Eden on a mountain with a tree. Mm-hmm. All of these ideas and man, it, it, you, interpreting revelation is, uh, is difficult it's a, a trip. En- enough. <laughs> you don't have a chance without any kind of old Testament Context. Oh, not only do you not have a chance, you will always be thoroughly wrong, and it ensures always. that you will be. And anybody that anybody that's out there that says they've cracked the code to Revelation, just 
stop listening. Well, you can listen yeah. for just entertainment purposes, but do not just, take anything that they say. That doesn't mean that we don't study Revelation and that we don't. Uh, there's some beautiful things there, but sure. it's yeah. Not anybody that's to cracked solve. the code, nah. No. Let's put it this way. I always put it this way, right? You know, with someone, you know, they, they get all up on their high horse about how they figured Revelation out, for instance. Hey, here we're talking about genre of law, and we've gotten all the way to Revelation. Well, I mean, that's the reality of it. All of Scripture, on some all. level or another, is law. Um, so it's kind of natural that we had to end at Revelation. But, yeah, he was yeah, absolutely certain. You have know, got this, and this chronology breaks down this way, and then there's all these... You know, he had his charts and, and graphs. Oh man, he had charts up wazoo. And I said, "Look, I tell you what, I tell you what." I said, "You find me one expert in the Old Testament before the coming of Christ that got the Messiah correct." Not one. And I'll believe you. The thing is, we're all wrong. That's the whole point. That's the whole point. We're, we're, it's it's supposed to call us to repentance before those things occur. So that it can actually show us the way to life and to teach us faithfulness in the midst of difficulty because you're going to suffer in this world. Uh, That's kind of the, the whole point of Revelation. Yeah, God's it's, gonna it's win, really like, it's what's not the over. idea of Revelation? Yeah, I could, you could sum it up this way. God wins. In fact, he's already won. God wins and you will suffer along the way. And you're going to suffer. Um, and and that that really comes out over and over and over and over again whether it's through martyrdom whether it's through suffering in the world whether it's through persecution whether it's through abandonment whatever it is there's coming a day where all of it will be worth it mhm you know yeah. and 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 to, to to focus all the way through on that you get none of that if you've cast aside the old testament and and especially if you've cast aside the law um, just because Jesus comes and yes, does he fulfill it? Yes. That doesn't mean he's doing away with it. No. That means we should read it more yeah. from the light of who Christ is and what he's done. Holy cow. He went to the cross. What does that talk about? What is it? Why is he on a tree? Why is it talked about in this way? A tree? Wow, that sounds familiar. Where should we go for that? You know, all of these things come out of the law. The whole point is that this is showing us who our God is. And every time we see our God, we will see a God of absolute intensity. Mm. If you are for, if he is for you, nothing can be against you that will ever succeed. And if he is not for you, nothing will ever succeed against him in saving you. And, and there is an exclusivity to who he is, to what he does, and to his, not just his moral law code, but the way life works. Mm. You know, last time we talked about wisdom literature. It's born out of law. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's born out of law. The Concepts of the law is repeated. It's, it's saying, throughout. this is my father's world, and this is how he's made it to work. Generally speaking. <laughs> and it's good. It protects me. It... <laughs> It, it protects my brothers and sisters. It protects my right. family. It protects our community. It just kind of makes sense. Um, well, so what would you say to those who would come up and say, you know, wow, you're talking so highly about this stuff, but, you know, in the law you see, you know, it's condoning slavery mm. and, and, and patriarchy and stuff like this. Yeah, I would, say, I would say that it's not condoning it. Um, I, I think it's an honest God that's looking at the idea of this is present, this is culturally happening, this is how you handle it. So nowhere nowhere do I see in there um, that there's a condonement where God is saying that slavery is a good thing ever. Right. Um, and this is the same, Paul's not condoning slavery but he's also in the culture and knowing and looking and recognizing that this it's a thing it's a thing um and he actually you know he's he can't make his christian brother free the slave but he says it's a good idea you're talking you, to you need, you need to but he's your he's your brother and sister but then he also tells the slave 
that he needs go home. He needs to go back. He needs to go home. Um, that's not a condonement of, of of slavery. He he's allowing. This is what God does. Free will beings. So even though reformed and Calvinist, it, that there's no that free will is still in play. It it, it always has been. Um, yeah. we're, we are free will beings. We 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 are free until we run up against God's freedom. <laughs> we run up against God's freedom. You're you're gonna lose. But well, but, one of the, one of the cool aspects about how God actually deals with slavery in the law um, is when you when you actually look at how it's compared to the slavery in the world that yeah, existed in the different. ancient Near East. He he comes up and he actually to to, to our ears it just sounds insulting on so many levels. But to their ears, what they're hearing is the slave is also made in the image of God. That's right. And so when you wrong them, there is punishment for you. Mm-hmm. That, that, that is... Even more so because you're in a place of authority. Correct. So we, And we talk about this idea of authority, about how, and, and I think you're right, that we misunderstand, especially in American culture, um, about how... God places people in authority. It doesn't really matter if it's in a communist society, a socialist society, a capitalistic, free market, whatever. People mm-hmm. that are in authority and your boss at work while mm-hmm. you're at O'Reilly's or that you're wherever, that person that's placed over you. That doesn't mean that God's condoning evil actions or even saying that he's good. And it just kind of pastors in our churches, which we've kind of forgotten about as well. Our pastors in our churches, our our elders, um, that there there is there's a way that we're supposed to look at and view authority, law. Mm -hmm. That just like say, you know, of course it's it's lawful to go and 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 abort your child, you know, a a man that's drunk driving can be driving and kill a woman that's on the way to an abortion and go to jail for double homicide. But that doesn't mean now from the moral perspective of that, that we (laughs) observe and obey that law. It doesn't mean that God condones abortion because it's legal in America. That's, that's retarded. If, if we're ever told that we have to burn incense and worship Biden, um, no, we don't follow that. Um, but, but, and, and I'm people are like, oh, crazy that can never happen. Well, okay, like, what about? It's happening in China right now. What about what about the flag? What about page? What about when they tell us that you're you're not a you're not a patriot? Um, right. You're not you're not worshiping the government or the flag. That doesn't mean um, that's that's a different thing to be a patriot and pledging allegiance to a flag. But but I can also see how that language can be interpreted and misconstrued and used against us as, oh, you're, that would, you're, you're that not a would be an, That would be an interesting topic for us to talk about one night um, yeah. because that is something that several years ago I made up my mind I can't in good conscience do um, in, in, in pledging allegiance to the flag and such. I mean, there, there there's a number of places that and that this does not mean that I do not love my country. I do that. That, but that specific one, I have issues with. I do um, uh, the language of it. Um, right. The idea I mean, of an I, allegiance. I love serving jury duty. I actually love paying my taxes. I have no issue with these things. Uh, um, you know, I'm just. That, but I'm not as libertarian as some. Uh, I don't have any issue with these things. I understand there's a responsibility we have towards our civil um, aspect. Uh, it's, but th- there are limits to it, limits to the national religions, um, and Christians are going to learn soon that, uh, or not, um, that th- that those things will become unquestioning or unquestionable. Yeah, it'll um, be used against it's, us. It's going to cost you something to uh, to resist such things. Um, I will say though, if there's anyone out there that's going to do a sermon from Leviticus, just as a, a, a way to kind of funny put us out don't do what i did for mother's day uh one year and preach on leviticus 12 uh the purification after childbirth 
Um, it was a magnificent sermon in my mind, um, but people hate Leviticus so much that it kind of fell on deaf ears. Um, but I'll tell you what, uh, that was an amazing sermon, and I'm going to preach it someday again just to freak people out. But I called it what it should be, which is God's love of mothers, you know? And and I can't think of a better Mother's Day sermon text than Leviticus 12, so you can go ahead and take that someday. I'm trying to refresh my memory. Was that the sin offering on Leviticus No, 12? it's the purification of the woman after she gives birth. Okay. So right. it, it would basically... But they, call, this... they would call that a sin offering. But, okay. but it wasn't yes. about sin. It wasn't like she sinned. Uh, and so also, like, say, the menstrual cycle it was a similar thing. Correct. Correct. Yep. But so there and it, again, that's why we don't unhitch. The, we got to talk about these things because we do. Because we need to bring them into context. The, the cool thing is, it actually ties into Israel's history. Yeah, here I'm yes. going to go off on a rant on this. It ties into Israel's history as, like, every single child coming into the world is like this anticipation. Maybe I could bring the Messiah into the world, mm. and 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 it just becomes this this anticipation that's particularly a lesson for mothers that mm. nobody else got. And it was and about it, sacred space, too. I thought it was so awesome. I still think it's awesome. And, I do, I do trying think to convince that's awesome. people that never read Leviticus of that is a little tough. Yeah, <laughs> tough sell. Tough. <laughs> tough it had to be a longer, longer sermon that they're probably going to not allow a Baptist to be able to do. You only <laughs> well, what, 45 minutes tops. <laughs> the people got to go eat. Yeah, I think that one was pushing it. All right, Tim, why don't you close us out in prayer? Oh, yeah, let's do that. Our Father, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful mm -hmm. for everything that proceeds from your mouth. We thank you specifically for law, mm -hmm. that it shows us who you are, and it really shows us, by contrast, who we are as well. It shows us your heart. It shows us the things that you love and the things that you hate. We pray that we share that same heart and that that mind that you are giving and working in each of us as your people would, would resonate with the law that is now written on our hearts. Mm. We thank you that we have a better covenant we have a better mediator of that covenant, that we have a better temple, a better priest, and a better sacrifice in Christ. But we do thank you, Father, for the testimony of our Old Testament brothers and sisters, that they carried loads that most of us could never imagine looking forward to things that would never be seen by their eyes before they met their grave, but things that were reserved for us, and we are forever in their debt. Mm. We thank you for their testimony. We thank you for their faith. These imperfect, fallible people that failed so often and yet time and time again come and depend on you and what, wait for you to do these things. In the eyes of the world, that faith usually looks like failure. Being persecuted or shipwrecked or sawn in two or run through with swords. That whole list in Hebrews 11. I pray you give us stout hearts and prepare us for whatever lies ahead of us. We thank you for your spirit that now has indwelt the temple that you've made for him throughout all the world, made up of people of every tribe, tongue, nation, and peoples. We look forward to getting to know every single one of our brothers and sisters from every time, period, and place. Until then, we pray you keep us patient as we suffer rightly. We pray that you cause our minds to delight in your word and in your law. We thank you for all these things in your son's name. Thank you for listening to Theology Untucked. 
Join us each week as we engage in all things theological, biblical, and cultural. These are the types of conversations we should be having in the church today, and we aim to play our part. Also, we'd love to hear from you. If you have a question you'd like us to address, or a prayer request, please send them to us. You can reach me at Caleb at TheologyUntucked.com. Or you can reach me at Tim at TheologyUntucked.com. Do note that your prayer requests remain strictly confidential. We will not be sharing them on the show. For more information or to support the show, please visit TheologyUntucked.com. Lord's blessings to you all. Thank you.